Good morning. It's good to be back. I just want to say that from the bottom of my heart, uh, for my wife and I, we appreciate your prayers and patience as we've kind of gone through a difficult season. You know, it comes for every one of us. And uh, it just, it's good to see how God, through our friends and family here at our church, have been praying for us and walking through uh, this time. And I'm excited to see uh, this next step in our life. I believe God, uh, through this time, just gave me a, a, a time to really relax and be refreshed. I'm thankful to have friends and leaders in our church, like Luke and Kevin and their wives and and uh, Chris and Katie and uh, Kristen and Jason to step up and kind of fill in the gaps. And for all the volunteers that kind of stood in the, the gaps that were created because of uh, us stepping away, I appreciate for uh, all of their willingness to do that and how God is using them. And I just want to say uh, thank you to our leadership team and all the volunteers. Uh, and if you're not serving, um, then take it upon yourself to thank someone who is because they're standing in the gap for, for you all. And, and we uh, are a family. We do this together. And I just, uh, it's amazing to see how God's been working in the life of our family. Um, the last uh, two months, I've been able to just kind of sit back and soak and be refreshed. And uh, I know this isn't New Year's Day or January, but uh, in January, uh, I was listening to the radio. And on the radio, I was listening to the Family Life Radio, and in between the times that they play music, they usually have a speaker or a teacher come on and talk about different things of the Bible, encouraging the Word. I think there's a thing called intentional living, just a way to keep you focused throughout the day on, on living a God-honoring life. And the speaker, I can't remember who it was, but he was talking about all the New Year's resolutions. And, and I'm thinking, yeah, I can, I can jive with that. You know, it's, it's January. It's the time for me to hit the diet again be a little bit more regular going to the gym and all the normal leaves I turn over and turn back over halfway through the year. And, um, and so I was thinking through that. And then he, he challenged all the listeners. He said, you know, instead of making all these New Year's resolutions that you'll probably never accomplish, choose one word, one word to be the theme of your life. Let one word be the theme, be the banner that you put over your life, and let that kind of direct your thoughts and and your plans for this year. And so in 2017, this new year, I was thinking, what word is it that I'm clinging to or could cling to this year? And if there was one word that I could cling to this year more than any other word, that is the word hope. Hope. Hope, by its definition, is basically a feeling of expectation or desire for a certain thing to happen. That's what hope is. It's Hope is that thing that drives you. It's that driving force that motivates you to continue leading your life in a positive direction. Hope is what drives you to set goals, to dream dreams, to have visions and cast visions for your life, and it gives you the strength and motivation and encouragement to chase after those dreams, those visions, and those goals and plans. Hope is also that force that when you're at your weakest moment, when you're, when you're at your, the lowest moment, moment of your life, hope is what rises up within you and says, you know what, keep going. Go after it. Victory is in sight. You know, I think about uh, the last football game, the Super Bowl. Anybody watch that game? 
Come on now, I know you're awake. Yeah, watch that game. I'm not a huge sports fanatic, so I don't really watch any of the regular season games. But uh, for those of you that don't know, I was born in New England, so I kind of bleed the Patriots. Even though I don't really follow them, I get excited for them when they're doing well, and they usually end up in the Super Bowl, so it's a good team to, to, to support. And, uh, and this year, the Super Bowl, uh, we, uh, we got to, uh, like we've been doing the last couple of years, go down to my brother's keeper and uh, just throw a Super Bowl party for the homeless guys down there just to encourage them. And uh, what's exciting is actually during this year's Super Bowl, uh, we uh, gave a devotion. I, I led a devotion, and, and uh, three men raised their hands and said they were accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so uh, that's an exciting thing. So not only was it a great game, but that was like the highlight of the night. And so... If you serve at My Brother's Keeper or you give regularly of your, uh, in your tithes and offerings, you give to our missions fund to help support local and foreign missions, thank you so much for that. If you haven't chosen to begin giving or get involved either by making meals or serving, definitely I challenge you to begin doing that because your gifts are turning into eternal reward. Uh, the, the ministry of Vertical Life Church is having an impact, and we're thankful for that. But it was, a, it was an exciting game because going into the Super Bowl, the Patriots were expected to win. They, it was supposed to be a close game, but they were the ones picked to win. And so, of course, I'm like, yes, this is going to be a great game. It's just going to be smiles and giggles all the way through, and, uh, and I'll be able to gloat when it's over. But when that first quarter came around, they weren't playing so well. And the Falcons were up in the score, even into the halftime. They were going in with only a field goal. And then even the third quarter, it looked like, man, how, how are they going to come back from such a wide margin? And I believe it was said that no team in recorded history has come back and won a game when they were down by 20, 30 points. So I'm like, this is not looking good for my team. But then something happened in the fourth quarter. Every time the Patriots touched the football, they scored a touchdown. Every time. All the way until the end of the game where they went in first time in recorded history, went into overtime, and then to win it. By and large, probably the most incredible and amazing game in NFL history. It was one to remember. There were some supernatural catches and passes and all sorts of things happening in that game. It was one to watch. And when we were there with the, the men at My Brother's Keeper, it was fun just to see them be excited and animated. One guy's, we were down to the... the, the, the um, overtime and uh, Patriots had the ball. He's like, man, if they win, I'm going to win the lotto. I mean, this is just like, he's like, I'm winning the mega bucks. He's, he just knew that if they were going to win and they had that much luck, it had to be spreading around because not, not one team could have that much luck going for him. But uh, it was an exciting game. And I think what was the factor that had them going into that last quarter from a deficit that's never been overtaken to a shot to go into an overtime that's never been done, even to come back and to win it? And the answer is it's hope. You know, they, they didn't focus on all the negativity. They didn't focus on, oh, no team's ever done this before. They never focused on, well, this is impossible. There's never been an overtime. You know, we don't have a chance. No, they kept doing what they knew that they were trained and bred to do. They trusted in their training. They trusted in their coaching. They trusted in the fact that they knew if they played their hearts out that they could win. And guess what? They did. They won. See, hope is that driving force. It's what rises up within you to tell you, keep going, even when you're at your weakest, when you feel like you've got nothing left to give. Can I be honest with you this morning? I mean, we're family, right? Be a little transparent. The last two months have been a big season of growth for me and uh, my family and uh, I, uh, through the last couple of months, I actually started going to counseling to help wade through some 
emotional issues that I've been struggling with my entire life. And uh, started seeing a, a counselor to, to wade through kind of why I've been dealing with some of the things that I've been going through. And as I was meeting with the counselor, he had me take a test. Of course, I love tests. No, I don't. But he had me take a test. And this test happened to be 700 questions. It took me 45 minutes to do. And I was definitely not looking forward to that. But it was a personality test. And because he wanted to kind of unpack some of the things that, you know, some of the root causes of what I was dealing with. And in that test, he found out that I have elevated depressive levels, I am obsessive compulsive, and extremely introverted. So I know, great qualities for pastoral ministry, right? But that's what he found. Not only did, did he reveal that to me, but I also discovered that I have historically viewed all of my relationships from my friendships to even in my own family, my relationships as conditionally loving. What that means is I didn't believe in my heart that people could love me just for who I was, warts and all, that it was okay to be me, that I had to be something else, I had to have the right answers, I had to say the right things, I had to always make the right choices, could never look bad, could never make a mistake. And what that did for me is that insulated me into a wall or a bubble of negativity. There was a broken record inside of me feeding me nothing but you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're never going to get it right, you're incapable, you're not worthy, you're not qualified. Don't do that because they won't like you anymore. Don't do that because they won't love you anymore. They'll neglect you, they'll abandon you. And that's all I had fighting inside of me. And what I realized during you know, that those counseling sessions is at the core of my heart. I believed in God. I believe that Jesus and God, he's a miracle maker. He is the God of the impossible. He can do anything. But deep down, I just didn't have any hope that my life could or would be any different. That this is just how life was going to be for me, and I was going to be stuck in that, just had to manage that. I had no hope. And what hope does when you have hope what it does is it redirects your thoughts and your mind toward the positive. It gets you looking away from the struggles, away from the negative, and towards the positive. It's that voice inside that says, fight through the fear. Get through the embarrassment. Obey God no matter what. Keep doing what you know is right because it's going to pay off. It's going to work out in the end. But when you don't have hope, you don't have that voice promoting you to go forward, to make the decisions that are going to help you better your life as, as opposed to being stuck in the negativity. And maybe that's some of you here today. Maybe you relate with that. Maybe you know what it's like to say, you know what? I just don't have any hope. I gave up trying. I gave up believing that I could be any different, that I could beat this habit or that I could break free from this this frame of mind that I could break free from the things I struggle with. I gave up hope believing my spouse would change or be any different. I gave up believing that people could actually love me or take care of me or that I'm not actually destined to be alone. Whatever it is that you're dealing with, I'm here to tell you today that we have a hope. God knows our struggles. He knows what we're dealing with. He knows us more intimately than we know ourselves. And God, knowing our struggles, he sent Jesus Christ to this earth not just to die for our sins and provide us a way to enter into heaven. No, he sent Jesus to be our source of never-ending, never-failing, overcoming hope. 
And this brings us to our key verse today in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18 and 19. And I want you guys to jot this verse down, and I want you to memorize this this week. I want you to absorb this this week and take this in, because this is a word from God to us about our hope. Notice right here in verse 18, the writer of Hebrews says, So God has given both his promise and his oath. Time out right there. Think about this. This is our heavenly father, right? The perfect one, the creator of the world, the holy and righteous God. When he speaks, what? Everything comes into existence. There is no challenging him. There is no questioning him. And here it says God gave his promise. It says, I I promise to make this come to pass. I promise that this will be sure in your life. But then he does something else. He makes his oath, which means he swears by everything he is. So if God, who could just speak something to happen, now gives us a promise and an oath, which means we can take this to the bank, we can hold this with all we have, and we can build our lives upon this very truth. Here's what he says. He says, his promise and his oath, these two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the, what's that word? Hope. As we hold to the hope that lies before us. This, what's that word? Hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. If you think about a ship traveling on the seas, it has an anchor. And an anchor is thrown into the great deep. The line is let out so that the anchor can hit the sea floor and hopefully it catches a rock formation or that uh, it digs itself deep into the sand so that when the waves begin to crash, when the storms begin to move in, that that vessel, that boat doesn't get knocked off course. The anchor keeps you in place. It keeps you uh, from getting lost out in the storm and out in the sea. And that's what our hope and faith in Jesus Christ is. It is an anchor for our souls. So on this journey of life, as we're traveling and the storms of life begin to crash against us and uh, beat against us, we begin to struggle in, in the negative things that the enemy brings into our life and the struggles that we face begin to try to change our mind and change our focus and redirect us our hope in Jesus Christ keeps us in place. It keeps us steadfast. It keeps us strong. It keeps us steady in our journey of faith. But not only is it an anchor keeping us in place, but look what verse 19 says. It says, it leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. This hope we have in Jesus Christ is not just an anchor, but it's also a tugboat. It keeps us in place, but then it also pulls us along past the curtain, into the very center of God's presence. This is language referring to the Old Testament about the tabernacle or the temple where God's people would go to offer sacrifices. And there was a curtain that separated God's presence and his glory from the people. Because of sin, mankind could not stand in the presence of God, and only one man, the high priest, one time a year, was allowed to enter into that presence of God to offer sacrifices for the people. If someone unworthy would have entered into God's presence, they would have died because of the presence of sin in their life. And here the word of God is saying, this hope we have in Jesus leads us past that place that kept us separated from before and into the very center of God's presence. And the psalmist says, in the presence of God, there is unspeakable joy. 
The writer of Hebrews says, if we come boldly to that throne of grace, that presence of God, we will find love and mercy and help when we need it. Our hope keeps us traveling in the right direction, heading towards God where all things are made new, where we receive what we need to help us in the time of storm. The core concept for this message today, I'm going to give it to you right now, is this, is that God uses hope to take our mess and make something beautiful out of it for his glory and our good. God uses hope to take our mess and make something beautiful out of it for his glory and our good. And like I said, today I don't know what you're struggling with. I don't know what decisions you've made. I don't know if there's something you did 10 years ago that you just can't shake or maybe 10 minutes ago that's eating your lunch today. What I do know is that God knows everything in your life. He knows what you need. He knows how to deliver you. And he's provided something for you today to help you overcome the struggles you face. You see, when we struggle and we begin to lose hope, that's when our faith is shaken. That's when we start feeling powerless. That's when our view of even God and his word begin to change. We stop believing that his word is true and we kind of shelve the Bible and let it start to collect dust. We stop believing that God is listening, so we stop praying and we start detaching ourselves from the very thing that we need to help us overcome our situation. We start making decisions that, that are contrary to what we really want because we have lost hope in what we know is true and right, leaving us to push people away and wallow in our dysfunctional relationships, to continue to make the same decisions that lead toward our habits and our hang-ups and the things that beset us and bring struggle into our life, all the while we act like everything is okay. A lack of hope creates that wall or that bubble of negativity in our lives. But I'm here today, church, to tell you we have an anchor for our soul. It is strong and trustworthy and is the source of never-ending, never-failing, overcoming hope. And I want to talk to you today about your past because I know we all have things in our lives. Every one of us, if you're a follower of Christ, you are a sinner saved by grace, which means we all have junk. We all have a story. We all have a testimony. There's not a perfect person here in this room. There's not a person that can point fingers and say, ha-ha, you did that because you've got three fingers pointing right back at you, condemning you for things you've done. We all have a story. We all have things in our lives. We all get to the cross the same way. And I know, and as I know in my own life, there are things that we've done and there's things that you've done that you're just not able to get over or get through. And today I want to talk to you that you have a hope for yesterday. Tap your neighbor in this place. Come on, it's participation time. Tap your neighbor and tell them you have a hope for yesterday. If you don't have a neighbor, look at somebody and yell at them. You have a hope for yesterday. Now tap your other neighbor and tell them what I did yesterday does not determine who I am today. And say it again. Say it with me. Make sure you believe this. What I did yesterday does not determine who I am today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, as we open your word, I pray that your spirit would just fill this place, God, that you would open our hearts that we'd be ready to receive your word. Open our ears that we can listen and discern and understand. Open our minds that we would not be enslaved to the enemy and, and numb and blind to the things that you have for us, God. And I pray for the person struggling today. 
God, there was a situation in their life and they've not been able to overcome. I just pray that your power by the blood of Jesus Christ will set them free today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be talking about a very familiar story. It's kind of funny. Over the last couple months, I just have had time to just study and prepare messages and not really focus on preparing services. And it's interesting that uh, through uh, Pastor Luke and then also John uh, Zofko and even last week Otis, it seems like God is just bringing the same stories to light. And so there must be something uh, that he's trying to get our attention about in the word using these stories. There's something that he's connecting together. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 15 talking about Abram and Sarai. Very familiar story. And uh, Abram, he was an old guy. You know, he had lots of possessions, very rich man. And uh, he'd gotten to the place in his life where he was in his forever home. He had lots of wealth, lots of servants, lots of cattle. Back in that day, you were wealthy based on how many heads of cattle you had and your sheep herds. And he had lots of that stuff, lots of clothes. And uh, he, he just had the life, right? He and his wife were living it up. And uh, one day, God comes to Abram and says, hey, Abram, I want you to move. And he's like, okay, God, where do you want me to go? And he's like, you just pack up and go, and I'll let you know when you get there. I'm like, I just moved. Recently, my wife and I just moved into a new house. We still have boxes we haven't unpacked, and we didn't really have that much stuff compared to what Abram was going through, and it was stressful enough just to move to a place we knew we were going. You know, here, he's like, pack up all your stuff and just go, and when you get there, I'll let you know, and I'm like, okay, I could see that conversation not going well with his wife, but they do it. They pack everything up, and they just take off, and then they finally get there, and God's like, all right, you're here. You made it. All right, we're going to bless you. You know, he comes and he says, I'm going to bless you for you've been faithful and, and I'm going to provide you a great legacy. And in Genesis 15, God comes to him after they settled in the land and he pronounces this over Abram's life. It says, sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram. I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it him as righteous because of his faith. The first thing I see in this passage is poor Eleazar. I mean, think about it. I find humor in the Bible, and I'm thinking this Eleazar guy knew every penny he was going to get when Abram croaked. You, you know he knew that. He's like, yes, I'm the guy in line. I'm getting all this stuff. God, can you kind of speed this process up a little bit? Because I want to get to being a king. You know, go from a slave to a king. Go from a servant to a master. This is, I'm sure he was preparing it. He already had his, you know, uh, vacation home spotted out when he could pull the trigger on that. Already had the colors of the carpet. But here God says, nope, Eleazar, you ain't getting squat. And I just think he's probably being like, oh, man, I can't believe that. I could see him getting bitter and, you know, putting some hot sauce in the baby bottle, you know, you know or when the child is starting to you know, learn to walk, he kind of butt checks him over, knocks him over because he's like, rotten kid, I was going to get all that money, you know, but uh, that I could just, my heart goes out to Eleazar. But in this, this passage, God comes to Abram 
and he casts a vision for his life. He says, Abram, because of your faithfulness, I am going to cast a vision. This was Abram's defining moment. This is where God was saying, this is my plan for you. This is what I'm going to do in you and through you. You're going to be a great nation. You're not, your number is going to number outnumber even the stars. And I think about, do you remember a time when you had that defining moment, where you had that aha moment where you knew what God wanted you to do with your life? You know, when uh, I work at Mott Community College, and part of my job was to kind of promote skilled trades to high school students, and often I would give lectures and, and uh, uh, just promote different uh, training programs, and I would ask them this question. Do you remember being asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they'd all say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd say, well, what did you want to be when you grew up? And we'd go around the room, doctor, lawyer, uh, dentist, uh, mechanic, engineer, the, the whole nine. And, and I remember, even as a young, at a young age, knowing that, you know, what I wanted to do, what I felt like God had made me to do was be a musician and to play and perform, to write songs. And I think each one of us can remember a time where we thought about our lives and looked into the future and thought, you know what? That's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. And we got excited about it. We began dreaming about what it would be like to live that out in our lives and, and how we were going to get there. Even took some steps to walk into that. Maybe we looked at colleges that we could go to that specialize in that skill. Or maybe it was sports and you were looking at uh, colleges for sports teams or, or what you could get scholarships for. We've all been there. We've dreamed those dreams. We've planned those visions. We've set those goals and even set out to accomplish them. And along the journey... Something happens. Along the journey, sometimes something happens, something out of nowhere that kind of derails that dream, that vision, that goal. It makes you take a step back and say, you know what, well, maybe that's not what I'm meant to do. In Genesis chapter 16, just the very next chapter, hasn't been too long, but it's been about 10 years since God came and cast this vision over Abram's life. They were already old, so 10 years is is quite a bit of time waiting on a child. But 10 years goes by, and Sarai comes up with a big idea. Now, when it comes to ideas, if we were to rate them on a scale, I think this is probably in the top five worst ideas ever imagined. Worst ideas you could possibly imagine. In Genesis chapter 16, 1 through 3, here's Sarai's idea, because God hadn't answered his, his, their prayers. God hadn't come through with that vision yet. Here's Sarah's idea on how to help God along. Verse 16, uh, verse 1 and verse chapter 16 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him, but she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have children from her. And right there, I feel like I'm in a, watching a horror movie where I'm trying to yell at the person, Don't go into that room! Don't do it! Stay, stay away from there. You know, I'm just like, don't do this. Bad idea. Worst possible scenario. Never would work. So Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abraham as his wife. He agreed with her. He went along with the plan. And this is what they did. Ten years went by. They had no answer. Sarai says, I'm tired of waiting. I've become impatient. I don't believe God's word to be true. I've lost hope. So she decides to sacrifice God's best 
for something she can control in her own power. Something not as good as what God had provided, she decides to do something on her own. You see, when God delays, when God's spoken to us, when we're praying for things, we're praying hard because it matters to us, and we're praying on our knees, we're crying real tears, our knees are getting uh, worn because of how much prayer we're putting into what we want, or because we feel like God's leading us into a certain direction, but we meet closed door after closed door, and we go to one closed door just to another closed door and it doesn't seem like anything is happening, we begin to lose hope because we get impatient. And there are so many things wrong with this picture, this idea. But do you see in this story that in a moment of hopelessness, it leads us to faithlessness? In a moment of hopelessness, it leads us to faithlessness. She became hopeless. She stopped believing. She stopped trusting. So she's like, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to try out my ideas. I'm not going to trust God anymore. And that leads her to institute an adultery in her marriage, which gives birth to a son who becomes the father of the Arab nations that have been constantly at war with the Jewish people for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Ishmael was born to Hagar. Isaac later was born to Abraham. And Isaac's son Jacob gives birth to the 12 tribes of Israel. And because of this one issue, we have bloodshed, we have anger, we have vitriol, we have malice between two people groups because of one decision to say, God, I'm tired of waiting. God, I'm not going to trust. God, I don't have hope in you. And that was just the long-term legacy. In the short term, if any of you, you've been through betrayal, maybe there's been an adultery or unfaithfulness in your relationship, or if you had a friend that stabbed you in the back, you know what kind of animosity and, and strife comes up. And, and when something just reminds you of that situation, and, and here you had a, a handmaiden who had birth to a son. There was so much drama in their relationship. It looked like an old episode of Jerry Springer that Abraham ended up having to throw Hagar and her son to the curb, leaving them for dead in the desert. So not only was there an adultery, but now he's abandoned his family. Yeah, good guy. That's faithful Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons. We sing about him. We lift him up. This is Abraham. This is the decision that he made. These are the mistakes and the sins in his life because they were hopeless and they took things into their own hands. But what I think is amazing here is look at God's response to their sin. You know, when we got to that point where we made a mistake and we were thinking, you know what, maybe this, this vision isn't going to work out. Maybe I'm not qualified to be what I thought God wanted me to be. Maybe that goal and that plan is just not going to happen because I'm no longer qualified. We begin having those negative thoughts. Look what God does in response to their sin. Genesis chapter 17, verses 4 through 6. God says, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I'm changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you'll be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations, and I will make you extremely fruitful. Your descendants will become many nations, and kings will be among them. And we skip down to verses 15 and 16. We see what he says about Sarai. It says, and then God said to Abraham regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will be Sarah, and I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly, and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. Does God condemn them for their sin? 
Does God say, oh, what I told you before ain't, ain't happening now. You made a mistake. You messed up. No, what's he do? He reaffirms his covenant. He recasts that vision. He gives them a new name. Why? Because he doesn't want them walking in the identity of their sin. He gives them a new identity to walk in what he's chosen and called and created them to be. And that is you and I here. In Romans chapter 11, 29, God says through the apostle Paul, for God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn, which means if God called you to do something, that's his plan for your life. And there's nothing you can do to cancel what God has purposed and called and prepared for you to do. There's nothing that we can do that ends God's plans for us because what he has gifted and called us to do can never be withdrawn. Because when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. If you are in Christ, he sees Jesus. Your sin was nailed to the cross. It's been forgiven. It's been washed clean. And he's wanting you to wake up and walk in the new identity that you have in Jesus Christ. Your past doesn't define you, but it can shape you into who God has made you to be. Scripture says that even before the foundation of the world, God prepared good works for each one of us to do. Now, that doesn't make what we've done okay. That doesn't make the sins that we commit okay. But what it does make is God makes God an amazing, grace-filled God who has prepared a hope for us as sure as an anchor for our souls to keep us in the center of his blessing and keep us moving forward into his presence to become who he's made us to be. And we go from this casting of vision again, this new identity again into chapter 22. And this is where it gets real. Because even though God did not condemn them for their sin, he still has to do something for it. In the Old Testament, whenever man would sin, God required a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, because only through the shedding of blood can you have remission of sins. So God comes to Abraham in chapter 22, and he says, Abraham, you've got to atone. You have got to atone for the sins that you've committed. In order to be right with me, in order to be Blessed by me, you have got to atone. There is sin in your life, and so you need to offer a sacrifice. And then he makes one of the most incredible requests. He says, I want you to take your son. Not the one you threw away, the one you don't care about. I want you to take your son, your only son, the one you love, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, we all know that God wasn't really asking him to sacrifice his son. It was more a test for Abraham to see God's faithfulness versus that sacrifice. But nevertheless, God made Abraham march his son up to the altar, up to that mountain, lay him on the altar. And within seconds of striking his son, his son being there on the chopping block, God intervenes and says, because you didn't withhold your son from me, that I know that you are faithful. I'm going to bless you even greater than what I was going to bless you before. Off into the, uh, over the side, there was a ram caught in the thicket, and God had him take that ram and offer that sacrifice. So now his sins were atoned for, and he was right with God, and now could walk in the blessings that he had prepared for him. And in this story, you see, many people believe that in the story that it's a symbolic of, of Christ as Isaac walked up the mountain with the father to be that sacrifice. But what I see in the story is a little, something a little different. The story is symbolic. I believe it happened, but it's a metaphor for us. I believe that Abraham symbolizes God. God is our father, and Abraham is our father. 
And I believe Isaac doesn't represent Jesus Christ. I believe Isaac represents us, you and me. And because of the sin that we've committed, because of the sin that we've unleashed into the world, there has to be an atonement. There has to be something given to atone for the sin, to make all things right. You see, God is a loving God. He is a merciful God, but he is also a just and a holy God. And a just, holy, righteous God cannot just sweep sin under the rug. He must condemn and judge sin. And so God, in this picture, he is the one with the knife raised over us who are on the chopping block. Our bodies are on the altar. Why? Because we are guilty of our sins. And a just and holy God must make all things right. He must judge us for the crimes that we've committed against him. But because he is also as loving and merciful as he is just and righteous, he provided another sacrifice. And the ram represents Jesus Christ. The ram was the substitutionary sacrifice that took Isaac's place so that Isaac could come off the altar and go free, just as Jesus was the sacrifice giving in our stead so that we could come off the altar and go free. The ram shed its blood to bring remission of sins, just as Jesus shed his blood to bring remission of sins. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice for us, is a cosmic do-over. It resets everything. Jesus in Revelation says, Behold, I have come to make all things new. The cross of Christ means that we get a second chance. And in the story, as we have Isaac come off the altar, the father and the son, Abraham and Isaac, are rejoined together, and they get to walk down the altar or the, the mountain together to forever be with each other. Just like we, through the cross of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice for our sins, are reunited with our heavenly father as he comes to make his home in our hearts to forever and ever and ever to never be separated again. We are united with Christ and with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And because of that sacrifice and that restored relationship, we have the ability to have a second chance. Again, we talked about the temple and the tabernacle and that veil that separated God and man. When Jesus died, there was a great earthquake that ripped through the land. It shattered the foundation of the temple, and that veil that separated the presence of God and the people was ripped in half and torn down, symbolizing that what was separating us from God has forever been removed. And between you and I, as we make mistakes and we look at our past, we say, oh, look at the things that I've done. Look at the things that I've done. God can't use me. God, God can't use me. Look at my past. I'm not qualified. I can't go in faith and, and follow uh, you know, what you're saying, Joey, because you don't know what I've done. You don't know who I've been. You don't know what I was looking at before I came to church today. You don't know who I was sleeping with over the weekend. You don't know how many times I've been drunk or high or stoned. You don't know who I've robbed. You don't know who I've murdered. You don't know what I've done. But yet the word of God in 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all wickedness. The cross of Christ is a cosmic do-over. And when we trust in the sacrifice of Christ, when we confess our sins to him, we can then step back and say, you know what, my life 
may not have gone how I planned. Yes, I made a mess of yesterday. But God knew that all along. God knew who I was and what I was going to do. And he still went to the cross for me. Book of Revelation, John says that we have a new name prepared for us in heaven, a name that only we will be under, able to understand, which means in Jesus Christ, we also, like Abraham, have a new identity, a new identity in Jesus. And just like Abraham was brought to a place of testing on that mountain where he was asked to offer his son, you and I, week after week, in this place, are brought to a place of testing. And even today, where we are challenged with the thought is do we really believe God is who he says he is? Do we believe his word that he will do what he says he will do? That if I turn from my sins and confess them, that he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And if I turn away from the wicked things, if I give up that life and pursue my relationship with Jesus, holding on to that hope, the hope that keeps me grounded, the hope that keeps me moving forward into that presence, then my life will never be the same. And the answer is yes. There is hope for yesterday. There is hope that what was past can stay dead in the past, that you are no longer the old man. You have become something new if you placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Those of you here today that you're carrying heavy burdens, you just can't get through the idea that you're not lovable, that you're not deserving. Maybe somebody did something to you and that pain has just been so heavy you've never been able to shed. And your knees have been buckling under the weight of your burdens. Let me encourage you today, because in 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says to give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares to you. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. There is hope for yesterday. There is hope for what has come and gone, and today you can have a cosmic do-over by placing your faith in Christ trusting in his death and resurrection and pursuing a relationship with him as you hold on to that hope and be drawn into his presence. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes in this place today. As we go into a time of response, in just a minute as the team begins to sing, I'm going to open this first row of seats and I'm going to invite you, whatever you're struggling with, doesn't have to be something that you've done. It could just be something you're going through. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to leave your seat and lay yourself down on this front row of seats as an old-fashioned altar and cast your burdens to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is at work in this place today, and we're going to see him bring deliverance and begin to make things move and shift in your life. As you get up, I believe the shift is going to happen. As you come forward to pray, I believe the power of God is going to be released to your life. And so I'm going to invite you to come forward and pray in just a minute. But right now in this place, just together, corporately, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. And if you're struggling, as you repeat these words after me, I believe God is going to begin a work in your life. So let's pray. Say this. Say, Father in heaven, 
I praise your holy name. I magnify you for all you have done. I place my faith and trust in you alone. And today I trust in Christ's finished work on the cross and ask you to forgive me for yesterday. The things I've done against your will, your word, and your name. Forgive me for every root of bitterness against those who have hurt me as I forgive them today in Jesus' name. And as I forgive myself for choosing to sin against you, I receive your forgiveness and grace in the name of Jesus. I lay down my guilt and my shame. And this day forward, I break every stronghold of the enemy in my life in the name of Jesus. I cancel all fear and receive your spirit of power, of love, and self-control in the name of Jesus. And today I walk this day forward in my new identity as a child of the Almighty God, trusting in his death and resurrection, forgetting what is behind and clinging to the hope I have in him. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand up together. Come on. Whatever's on your heart, you bring it forward and you lay it down at the feet of Jesus.